Proverbs chapter 2 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 1 through 15. Throughout the Gospels, you'll see Jesus tell his disciples what it really means to be a disciple. And one of the most explicit places that Jesus does this is John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. And Jesus looks at, he talks to the Jews, but he's really telling the disciples this in John 8, 31 through 32. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, if you look at the phrase that Jesus says, if you abide my word, then you are truly my disciples. Why did Jesus frame it this way? Well, if you look at the word truly, it implies that there are some who are real disciples and there are some who are actually fake disciples. They're posers. They're not the real thing. Remember right after the Super Bowl, all of a sudden, everyone's an Eagles fan. Oh, okay, yeah, right. Name one player on the Eagles. Well, I have no ideas, but I'm just, uh, they're Christians, right? You know, everybody's like, you know, so now all of a sudden, we have all these Eagles fans. But they're not really Eagles fans. Real Eagles fans stuck beside them through thick and thin when they were not good. And so that's how we know who the real Eagles fans are. They know former players. They know the stats. They know how many Super Bowls they had before. None, right? They know all these things. And so a true disciple is someone, he says, abides in my word. And he's implying that there are fake disciples. He's saying, he's not saying, okay, it's the varsity level disciples that abide in the word. No, he's saying, That's how we know who a disciple is. Let me say it to you this way. Early on in the life of a believer, to become a believer in Christ, we have to acknowledge what Christ has done on the cross for our sins. That Jesus Christ was born perfect. We were born sinless. Jesus Christ lived a perfect sinless life. We sin moreover, over and over again. We're guilty of our sin. We're guilty of Adam's sin. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, was not guilty of Adam's sin. Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life, died on the cross for our sins. And the reason why Jesus paid the price for our sins is because we couldn't pay it on our own because we're sinners. But Jesus, who was perfect, became a perfect sacrifice. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus, not only did he sacrifice for us, he substituted himself for us. And then three days later, the Bible tells us he rose again from the grave and he conquered the penalty of Satan's sin and death, the death that we all deserved. Christ conquered that, and we were told that when we repent of our sins, we put our trust and faith in Christ, that we become a new creation. We become a believer. The gospel changes everything. Now, what happens when you become a believer? You have a new heart, and your new heart no longer hates God. It loves God. And because it loves God, it's drawn to the Word of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're told that the Holy Spirit will seal you into the day that you receive your inheritance in Christ. The Holy Spirit is in you. you, When you become a believer, you have all of the Holy Spirit that you're going to get. You don't get an installment plan where you get the Holy Spirit's leg here and his arm here and his head here later on. Like, no, you get all of the Holy Spirit you're going to get. And what happens is the Holy Spirit who inspired the word of God 
And he's called the spirit of Christ throughout the Bible. He draws you to understand the gospel more and he draws you to understand God's word more. And so part of you becoming a believer is that you then have a found love for the word of God. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone? You see them become a believer and all of a sudden, man, they're like, I want to understand the word of God. And all of a sudden they do understand the word of God. These weird stories in the Bible, they all of a sudden began to slowly make sense. These theological concepts, they began to, to kind of start to play into how they understand the grand narrative of God's redemptive love. So it's all a part of being a believer. You began to be a person of the word. And so what's happening here, Jesus is saying, this is how we can find and articulate what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who abides in the word of God. They base their life on the word of God. This is how we know who's a true or real or authentic disciple. Now, what's, in, what's interesting is that Proverbs chapter 2 describes something similar. But rather than describing a person who is the disciple, Solomon, the writer of Proverbs, describes a person. He doesn't use the word disciple. He uses the word wise. Proverbs 2, is we're going to see how we can tell if someone who is truly wise and how they're growing in wisdom. And what we're going to find is that Solomon in Proverbs 2 is describing the person who's wise, and it's really similar to the way that Jesus describes a disciple. And so that's what we'll see. We'll start in Proverbs chapter 2. I'll, I'll start in verse 1. My son, again, if you saw her last week, Solomon begins a new section by talking like this is parental advice. This is God communicating to his children what is utmost important. He says, my son, my children, my son, my daughter, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Verse 5, he says, then, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For... Continuing this thought, he says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Good word, right? Guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the path of uprightness, of uprightness rather, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked, and who are devious in their ways. Okay, so we see at the very end of the text, there, is, there are evil, perverse men with crooked paths, and are devious in their ways, and then he contrasts them with someone who is wise. So he's making a distinction between someone who's wise and someone who's 
not wise. Now, if we looked at the characteristics of someone who's wise. We look at verse 5. He says, okay, a wise person, he says, you'll understand the fear of the Lord. You'll find knowledge in God. You'll want to know God, and you'll want to fear. You want to be humble before him. And then verse 7, he says, what does a wise person do? He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. Verse 8, what does the wise person do? He stands for justice. He watches over the saints. Verse 9 through 15, what does a wise person do? Well, he's a Describing how a wise person can withstand temptation from those who are evil and how he's different and distinct from those who are evil. So what Solomon is describing is really someone who's matured in their wisdom, who's grown in their wisdom. This is a person who is strong in the truth. It's a person whose knowledge of the truth is there, but they also have a practice. They demonstrate the knowledge that they have. Wisdom can really be broken down in two different ways. First, it can be broken down as orthodoxy, which is a correct knowledge, and then orthopraxy, which is correct practice. And to have wisdom, you have to have both of these things. And some people don't have both of those things. In other words, you can have great orthodoxy, but if you lack orthopraxy, Orthodoxy is meaningless. But if you can't, you can't have good orthopraxy without having good orthodoxy. And you can't practice righteousness without knowing what God's word says about what, how to practice righteousness, correct? So you have to have both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And what Solomon is describing is someone who has both. They have orthodoxy, they have good knowledge, they have orthopraxy, they have good practice, and they're demonstrating both of those things. So how do we have both? Because it's not just going to happen overnight. We're not just going to receive these things. We're not going to just know, have knowledge, and then have practice overnight. How do we do it? In the first four verses, Solomon tells us, he says, if you receive my words, Treasure up my commandments. This is verse 1. If you see my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. In these four verses, we see the secret to grow in wisdom. And it's important because all of them start with the word if. It's very similar to what Jesus says in John chapter 8, the very first thing I just read before we began this morning. What did Jesus say? If you abide in my word, you are my disciple. So in other words, in order to see a disciple, they have to abide in the word. And what does Solomon say about a wise person? If you want to live this life that's distinct, that's different from the evil way of the world, how do you live? He says, if. He starts it off, if you receive God's work and treasure his commands. And he says, if your ear is attentive, if you incline your heart to understanding it, if you call out for insight and raise your voice to understand it, if you seek it like silver or hidden treasure. You have all of these ifs in verse 4. And then what does verse 5 begin with? The word then. Then 
Then you'll understand the fear of the Lord. Then you'll walk in integrity. Then you'll stand for justice. Then you'll look out for the saints. Then you'll withstand temptation and look different from the rest of the world. And so in other words, you can't have what's in verses 15 or 5 through 15 without first applying what verses 1 through 4 are all about. You can't grow in wisdom without having Verses 1 through 4. You can't. It's impossible. You won't. You have to have what Solomon is after here in these first four verses. So what is he after? Well, he says three things. First of all, he says you have to receive the word, which is to know Scripture, to know the Bible. The second thing he says, you have to incline your heart to understanding it. You have to listen to sound teaching. So you receive the word, but you also listen to sound teaching. The third thing he says is to call out for insight. You have to pray and you have to ask God for wisdom. Now I want to explain all, I want to explain all three of these things, but I want to be clear. The second two, inclining your heart to understanding, calling out for insight, are really stemming off the first one. Receiving the word, knowing the word, knowing scripture. So I'm going to spend most of my time there. And it's interesting to me that this is how Solomon is describing a wise person. But he doesn't know when he's writing this, he's really describing what a disciple is. He's really describing what a disciple is. Now, he doesn't know what a disciple is. Jesus Christ hasn't come yet. Jesus Christ hasn't gathered disciples. He just knows this is how you have wisdom. But really later, we know it on this side of the cross as we read it, knowing what Christ did, knowing what disciples are. When we read it, we go, oh, he's describing a disciple. This is how we walk in obedience to God. This is how we glorify God with our lives. This is the same thing. Abiding in the word. Receiving the word. And so let me give you an example of this by using the words of Christ. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says some of the weirdest things. Like I want to do a series on like strange things that Jesus says. Because this, this one right here I'm about to read you is really bizarre, all right? John 6, Jesus says to his disciples, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. In you. This is one of those texts that I want to give to an elder to preach on and then go on vacation, right? This is a bizarre passage. Imagine, imagine you're a disciple and you grew up and you were poor and your father was a fisherman and then you became a fisherman or your father was a tax collector and you became a tax collector and all of a sudden you're following this charismatic leader, Jesus Christ, who heals the sick and raises people from the dead and makes the blind see. And then he's like, okay, by the way, I want you to eat my body and drink my blood, right? Now, unless you know what else the gospel says about Jesus, that Jesus was saying this because he claimed to be God, you think that he's a crazed lunatic or some sort of narcissistic cult leader. And so what I want to do, I want to show you what Jesus means by this statement. And I want to show you the dialogue that Jesus has with his disciples, because all of it has to do with what it means to follow him. I'll start in verse, John 6, verse 60. He said, it says, when many of the disciples 
heard it or heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? No kidding, right? Smart guys. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, which is why Jesus was probably hard to be around. He's like, I can read your mind, fool. You can't fool me, right? Knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If the Spirit who gives life, the flesh, is no help at all. And look at what he says next. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning, this is what John writes, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Why did Jesus make this bizarre statement? Well, he's, he's telling his disciples to feast on his word. And he says, because his word gives spirit and life. I want you to feast on the gospel And I want you to feast on the word. I want it to be a part of what saturates your life. That's what it means to follow me. You got to saturate your life with my words because my words are spirit and life. It's your way of survival. You won't survive without my word. And look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer walked with him. He's talking about the crowds of people that were following. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And I love Simon Peter's response here. Look at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? He says, you have the what? The words, the words of eternal life. And we have believed And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Why did Simon Simon Peter want to stay with Christ? It's not because of his miracles. It's not because he drew large crowds. He believed that Christ had the words of eternal life. He believed that Christ was spirit and life. And friends, this is what it means to follow Jesus. We have to believe in his word. This is how God has primarily chosen to reveal himself to us through his word. Now say that because most of you have come here this morning and you want to experience God. Most of you live your life, you're a believer in Christ, you really want to experience God. You really want to be full of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've even come here this morning. This is your first time here. Maybe you haven't been to church in years. Maybe you've never been before. And you're just saying, I want to know what this is about. I want to know how to know God. But all of us, in some way, we want to experience what does it mean to be in the presence of our Creator? What does it mean to know our Creator? So let me make it simple. Experience with God is knowing 
God. That's the entire point that Jesus makes to his disciples. He wants his disciples to feast on God's word. And that's the promise that Jesus made to his disciples, that his word, once you do that, it will give you spirit, it will give you life. That's why the disciples followed Jesus, because they believed that he had the words of eternal life. So if you want to experience Christ this morning, you must know him through his word. Experiencing God is knowing him. I I love 1 Samuel chapter 3 when it talks about Samuel's relationship with God. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 3 verse 21, it says, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed to himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the what? The word of God. Of God. How did Samuel know that God was with him? He revealed himself to him through his word. And friends, that is exactly the same thing that happens to us today. The Lord reveals himself primarily by the word of God. And it's not just books, it's not just knowledge, it's through the person of Jesus Christ. When we read scripture, and we saturate ourselves with Scripture, we commune with the Word of God. We commune with the Lord God himself. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the Word of the Lord. So if you want to try to run to the Lord without the Word of God, you will find something else. Because what God has revealed to us, God has revealed himself to us through his Word. It's what we know about him. Let me, let me show you another example by showing you a couple of places. Ephesians chapter 5. When I say Ephesians chapter 5, most of the time, if you've been around church, if you've been at a wedding recently, it's like a wedding chapter. That's how people know it. Unfortunately, that is the only thing people know about Ephesians 5. Well, that, oh, that's about husbands and wives, right? It's actually not about husbands and wives. The end of Ephesians 5 is, but the context of Ephesians 5 is really about a person who is walking in the Spirit of God. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what, what's happening in Ephesians, Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus and he's telling them, okay, he, the first few chapters, this is the gospel. This is what it means to be death, being from death to life. God giving you a new life and then you have a new life. And this is what it means to live and walk in obedience to Christ. You're walking in the spirit. And so what he does in Ephesians 5, he gives a whole bunch of examples of that. And so he tells us what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, most of you have come, you want to experience God. What does that mean? So most of us, we say, okay, if the Holy Spirit is God's way of knowing that we are with him and that he is going, or he is with us, he's going to be with us until we die and we have our eternal life with him. This is how we know that God is present with us through his Holy Spirit. Certainly, certainly we want to know what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the phrase filled with the Holy Spirit, it comes from Ephesians 5. So we've got to know what that means because there's a lot of opinions about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Man, I heard this song the other day, and I just, man, once that song, it man, I became filled with the Holy Spirit. I went to this revival, and I became filled with the Holy Spirit. So we want to know what this means. So what does it mean? Well, Ephesians 5 talks about a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish. Don't look at that one. Look at that one. There it is. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. He's saying don't be controlled by anything else. That's his point. But be filled with the Spirit. And what does a person who's filled with the Spirit look like? Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is what he says about someone who's filled with the Spirit. So they're singing songs, they're making a melody, they're giving thanks everywhere they go. They're, they're you'll even see later, it's, they're wise in their understanding. And it's sort of strange. I mean, it's like, okay, so now the Holy Spirit filled me, so now I'm going be to like, become like greatest showman. Like everywhere I go, I'm singing a song and making a melody to my heart. That's what it means, right? So what does it mean? Like, this is the way we live. So we're, we're, we're glad, we're thankful. We're, we, we understand that God is in control of all things. We understand that God is sovereign over all things, and so we're going to live this, this way. So that's what it means to be, that's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. So how do we become filled with the Spirit? He still doesn't tell us. It's not communicated in Ephesians 5. He just says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, how do we figure this out? Because in Scripture, when we find a, a place in, in Scripture that's not clear, we have to go to a clearer passage that will help us understand it. So what, what we do is typically what I do, what I encourage you to do, if you find an unclear passage, maybe try to find another place where the same author talks about the same subject. And interestingly enough, when you have confusing, confusing things happen, like in the book of uh, Ephesians, you have books like Colossians, which is really similar to the book of Ephesians. In fact, the book, the church of Colossae planted or started from the success of the church of Ephesians. And they're not far down the road from each other. It'd be like Wilson and Greenville. That's how far dif- distance uh, uh, Ephesus and Colossae would be. And so what Paul's doing, he's writing both to the church of Ephesus and he's writing to the church of Colossae. And he's writing about really similar things because both are facing similar issues. And what happens in Colossians chapter 3, he starts talking about, again, the same type of person. The person who's singing and making a melody in their heart. A person who's wise. A person who uh, is thankful that God is sovereign and trusts God in all things. But I want you to see the difference in what Paul describes between someone who's filled with the Spirit and the person he describes in Colossians 3. I'll read it. Colossians 3, verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Doesn't it sound like the the chapter we just read? Ephesians 5, right? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, What's the person doing? They're singing songs. They're singing hymns. They're singing spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. It's almost identical to Ephesians 5, right? And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. Now, what do you see? Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, both places. You have wisdom. You have singing songs. You have making a melody in your heart. You have giving thanks in all things. But what's the main difference? Ephesians 5, he uses the phrase, be filled with the Spirit, and then you'll live this life that looks like this. Colossians 3, he doesn't say filled with the Spirit, but what does he say? Let the Word of Christ dwell 
in you richly. He's describing the same thing, but is using a different phrase at the beginning. One is being filled with the Spirit. One is letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Could we be talking about the same thing? Yes. It is the same thing. So if you come here this morning and say, man, I want to experience God. Man, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, there's no secret. There's no secret. It's just letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If you want to experience God, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, you have to let the word of God saturate your life. And all Solomon is doing in Proverbs chapter 2 is he's giving you a sample of a person who does that. You're not going to grow in wisdom. You're not going to grow as a disciple unless the word of God is the foundation of your life. You got to be like Simon Peter who says, we're following you. Lord, because we believe that your words are eternal life. You got to be like Samuel, who saw the Lord revealed to him through the word of the Lord. You have to be what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 2. You have to treasure it. You have to seek it. You have to seek it like it is a hidden treasure. And so this is the secret to true wisdom. A life that is correct knowledge and correct practice, the word of God needs to be your foundation. And I love that he uses words like abide, dwell, seek. Because it shows that it's a part of your everyday life. Where do I dwell? We don't use that phrase anymore. We won't say, we say, where do you live? But where do I dwell? Well, I dwell on Fantasia Street, a few blocks away. That's where I dwell. And you know what that does? It impacts every part of my life. Because I dwell there, I go to this particular grocery store. Because I dwell there, I have these particular neighbors. Because I dwell there, this is how much money I spend on gas between coming here and going there. Because I dwell there, it impacts every area of my life. These are the people that I live with. They just happen to be my family. It happens to be my wife, and it happens to be my kids because they also dwell there. But dwelling in the Word, it should impact every area of your life. It's to saturate your life. It's to, it means you abide in it. It's part of who you are. And in Proverbs chapter 2, he gives us really two practical ways to dwell in the Word of God. He says in, in verse 2, he says, incline your heart to understanding. He says, he's really saying, listen to sound teaching. And then verse 3, he says, to call out for insight, which means pray and ask God for wisdom. So first of all, incline your heart to understand it. What does this mean? Well, one of my greatest fears as a pastor is that our church would over time become biblically ignorant. And if we do that, we have no chance of maturity. So we have a responsibility as elders, as pastors, we have the responsibility and the privilege to faithfully and clearly preach the word of God so that we can challenge you to incline your heart to understanding. So we have a responsibility to do that. But you also have a responsibility to incline your ear to hear it. And it's not just while you're here on Sunday morning, it's really throughout your daily life. And to make an obvious point, you should read it. It should be a part of what your week looks like. You should be reading the word of God. 
You should be walking through the word of God with someone else so that they could disciple you. You should do it in community. It should be what you listen to from the pulpit. It should be what you listen to in podcasts. It should be what you listen to on television. And by the way, most preachers on television are not good. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. No apologies. Because they're not saturated with the gospel. Most of them are saturated with prosperity and how to take your money. So you have wisdom and discernment. Incline your heart to understand it. Be around people who influence you from the word of God. When you're taking counsel from someone, do you ask, does this person that's giving me counsel, do they know the word of God? What's this person speaking to my life about their, my marriage, about my parenting? Do they know the word of God? Whether they talk about my money or how to fight sin or how to deal with others or how to fight temptation, do they know the word of God? And so this is what he means. Incline your heart to understand it. You're saturating your life around it. And then he says, call out for insight. And this is us praying before the Father and asking the Father to reveal his truth to us. This is us praying that God's word doesn't get stale or dry. And if you've been a believer for a while, maybe you have gotten to a season where the word of God just feels like a textbook or something that you just study because you're just checking off of a list. Okay, I did a Bible reading plan in January and I'm just trying to keep it up and make sure I don't miss a day. Or maybe you've just started one and you just haven't done it at all. Maybe it's just stale or dry. Maybe when you try to read it, you don't understand it. So maybe what I often do, and this is my temptation, this is, I think, all of our temptations. When we don't understand a passage, the first thing we do is go to Google, right? Well, listen, another, what does some commentary say about it? Or what does this blog say about it? Or, but maybe the first thing we should do is just pray and ask God, help me understand this. God, help me have the patience to work through it. Help me, help me have the patience to cross-reference. Help me have the patience to meditate on it. Lord, maybe, maybe you would pray and ask God, Lord, would you give me somebody in my life that can help me walk through Scripture together? Would you help me have somebody who, would you provide someone who would disciple me well in this so I could understand it? Maybe as we take the word of God, we pray, and instead of just reading it and say, okay, we checked it off this, this morning because that's what I was supposed to do, and it's just a habit, it's her duty. Maybe we look at it as like, man, this is the way I commune with God. This is the way I understand who he is. This is the way I fall more in love with who he is. So maybe praying and saying, God, what, what does you want me to understand about you today as we read it? And may that be a part of our lives. So it's, yes, we're inclining our ear to understand it, but we're also calling out to the Lord for insight. Give me insight this morning on your word. Maybe we would ask the Lord, give us insight to discern what your word means so I can handle it rightly, so I can handle it in context, so I can handle it with the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center. And so all of us need these things. We want to dwell in the, word, in, the, in the Lord, dwell in the word of God. We have to incline our hearts to understand it. And we have to call out for insight. And so this morning, if you've come here wanting wisdom, if you've come here wanting to experience God, you have to have the foundation of God's word. It needs to be something, as Solomon says, like a hidden treasure. And from there, you'll be allowing yourself to, in, to be influenced by people who also know the word of God. The person who 
disciples you need to know the word of God. The, the podcasts that you listen to need to be saturated with the word of God. The, the books that you read that you're being influenced by as far as feeding your soul need to be influenced by the word of God. And if it doesn't, it won't lead to good practice because wrong knowledge doesn't lead to good living. And this is why I need to pray and ask God to give us a passion and heart for his word. This is why we need to ask God to give us insight and clarity. And maybe we need to even ask God to provide a person in our lives that might help us understand God's word better. And so friends, we can't grow in Christ Integrity Church. We can't grow in Christ without his word. And this is why Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so this morning, my, my question is, do you have life in you? Do you have life? Do you have the word of God? Is it saturating your life this morning? My prayer is that it would. God help us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. We're grateful for